In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. I've had a song running through my head all week long. It's from the late 1980s. The band was R.E.M. And it's the song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. It's interesting with songs sometimes to look at the words apart from the music, and one really sees the poetry. It's the end of the world as we know it. The words go, that's great. It starts with an earthquake. Eye of a hurricane, listen to yourself churn. World serves its own needs, dummy. Serve your own needs. In a government for hire, in a combat site, team by team, reporters baffled, trumped, tethered, cropped. Look at that low playing. Fine then, oh, uh uh-oh, overflow, population, common group, but it'll do. Save yourself, serve yourself. World serves its own needs. Listen to your heart bleed, dummy, with the rapture and the reverent and the right, right, you vitriolic, patriotic, slam, fight, bright light, feeling pretty psyched. It's the end of the world as we know it. The song actually sings, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. (laughs) I haven't been able to sing that part this week. Um, I'm not sure what I feel. As a person of faith, of course I feel fine. Not a hair on my head will ever be harmed. I know that, I believe that, I love that truth. And yet, and yet, that song sings what a lot of us probably feel, this kind of delirious, disconnected rehearsal of baffling things, of of people and institutions and nature all colliding in unpredictable ways. Though that song debuted in 1987, of course, it had a huge resurgence at the turn of of the millennium in 1999. It was a new hit then, and then again in 2012, oddly enough. Because if you remember, that was to be the great Mayan apocalypse, the end of the world. I'm guessing that this week, with so much taking so many by surprise and so many questions about our future, regardless of how we might have voted, I'm probably not the only one who's humming, it's the end of the world as we know it. Well, this sense of the world ending is not new. Of course it isn't. It's not particular to us, even even when it feels like it is, even when there's a personal disaster or a local disaster or a national disaster. The end has happened again and again and again. In Scripture, we're told about these endings when the world seems to be on the verge of collapse and Sometimes we're told about it from God's perspective as the, 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 the ideas come through a prophet or come through Christ. But in other times, this sense of doom and impending calamity sort of rise up from the very hearts of faithful people, whether they're precipitated by some other events like a famine or a drought or an invasion or a war or a a time of rapid cultural change or when new leaders who are unknown or untrusted come to power. 
In today's gospel, Jesus speaks into such a time, and he speaks of such a time, and he makes it specific. Um, The disciples and he are walking along, and the disciples are making small talk. Look at this temple. It's amazing. And Jesus, being a little bit of a spoil sport, says, yes, and it's going to collapse. (laughs) This beautiful, amazing temple and all that it stands for is going to disappear. The day will come, Jesus says, when not one stone will be left upon another and all will be thrown down. The disciples hear this. He gets their attention. They become alarmed, and so they're listening They're not sure whether Jesus means that he, with their help, is going to storm the temple and bring it down, or whether the calamity is on its way, or regardless, this is serious stuff. And so the disciples ask him, well, when, what, what's going to happen? How will we know when this is all going to take place? And so Jesus senses their anxiety and begins to try to equip them for what's ahead. He warns them about false leaders and phony leaders, false prophets who will enter the scene and take advantage of fear and uncertainty in what feels like final days. Such people will exploit this sense of calamity. They'll do what they can to harness the fear. Jesus cautions, some will say the time is near. Others will say wars and insurrections are coming. But through it all, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Do not be terrified, because certain things happen along the way. In classic language of end times from from scriptures that Jesus surely heard when he was growing up and perhaps memorized from scriptures from Isaiah or Daniel or Enoch or John the Baptist or John the Divine, Jesus says along with all of them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes, plagues. And then Jesus makes it personal. To those who follow, to those who put simple faith in the way of Jesus and seek to love in the face of it all, get ready for rough times. Jesus warns that even the religious leaders are going to question them and perhaps punish them and may even persecute some. Even so, Jesus says, perhaps especially so, Jesus says, remain calm. Don't even plan out ahead of time what you're going to say. Trust in God to the extent that God will give you the defense you need. Trust in Jesus. Not a hair of your head will perish. Some could easily question this, knowing the history of early Christian formation, because soon after saying this, hares do perish. John the Baptist is killed. Uh, Stephen is persecuted. Many, many others die for their faith. But of course, Jesus is talking about something way beyond the here and now. Jesus is talking about things and people and institutions of this world that come or go, but look beyond them because those who follow the Christly way of love and sacrifice will have eternal life, will live into eternal life. And so what's this gospel saying to us? (laughs) Most of us probably have not had to risk being persecuted for our faith, uh, perhaps not yet, (laughs) And indeed, much of our culture regards Christian faith, gospel-based Christian faith, that is, 
as superstition or twisted psychology, uh, Christians are more likely to be pitied than feared. (laughs) Attending an Episcopal church especially is seen as a kind of nice, if oddly old-fashioned, cultural affectation, (laughs) harmless at best. Unfortunately for some who attend churches, that's the truth, and that's an accurate characterization. But for others of us, and I think for an increasing number of us, our faith holds within it the same power it had for those early disciples. Because there's something about the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, that Jesus who was born and lived a life like ours and was put to death and raised again from the dead. This Jesus still lives through us and gives us strength and gives us courage and tenacity for faith for final days, come what may. We will be ready. All week I've had that REM song going through my head. But I've also had a prayer going through my head and on my lips, and I've tried my best to live it with my body. I've I've prayed it almost like a mantra. It's a famous prayer that some of you know. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Over and over again, I've said it, and that little prayer can fool us with its simplicity, but make no mistake, it has the power to save lives and change history. Known as the Serenity Prayer, it was written by Reinhold Niebuhr, who was an American pastor and theologian and philosopher. He taught at Union Seminary across the street from Columbia University for many years. And Niebuhr's blend of passion for Christ and commitment to justice and ethics explains why so many, including Martin Luther King Jr., were inspired by Niebuhr. Martin Luther King Jr. even quotes Niebuhr in his letter from Birmingham jail. And it's interesting to notice the words that King quotes. He writes, It is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. Reinhold Niebuhr knew this from his days as pastor in Detroit in the 1920s. Some of you know the history of Detroit, and especially during that decade and the ones following. The 1920s saw a lot of change in Detroit. There was an enormous influx of African Americans coming from the South, getting good jobs. Jews from Eastern Europe and elsewhere were coming into Detroit, and then the worst of the worst Catholics were coming to Detroit. And they scared everybody. And so there was a new ascendancy of that group known as the Ku Klux Klan. People often associate that group with the South only, but no, it was alive and well and powerful, along with the Black Legion in the 20s in Detroit. In 1925, when the KKK publicly supported candidates running for office, Niebuhr spoke out against them and called those candidates to confess their complicity. 
Niebuhr said one of the worst specific social phenomena which the religious pride of a people has ever developed is the KKK. In other words, Niebuhr took responsibility that groups like the KKK had had taken scriptures and perverted them. And so Niebuhr was on the forefront of calling them to truth, real truth. Niebuhr spoke and preached and wrote about pacifism and then the use of just war. He confronted poverty and racism, class and unfairness. And so keep all that in mind when you hear that simple, innocuous little prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Of course, the prayer is called the serenity prayer, but but really it's not asking God to grant some sort of calm, passive, do-nothing attitude. Not for a minute. It's a prayer of discernment. It's a prayer for right action. It's a prayer for wisdom. As I've prayed that serenity prayer this week, I realize again and again my own powerlessness over people who vote different from me over the media, over government officials, especially over candidates and leaders elect. But as I've read of friends and colleagues who just this week have spoken out against prejudice they see or bullying they witness or racism they encounter in the form of a joke or a side comment, I'm reminded of the oh-so-many-things-I-can-change. Anecdotes are just anecdotes until they're your friends. One friend is Reverend Robert Harvey. He's the rector of a parish in Silver Spring, Maryland, um, a very enlightened and multicultural suburb of Washington, D.C. I believe at latest count, Robert has something like 43 nationalities represented in his congregation every Sunday morning. But on Thursday of this week, Robert was walking from the church to a convenience store. And as he moved into the parking lot, he saw two white young men yelling at an older Latina woman. Trump won. It's time to go back to your country, spick. Robert called them on it, took out his phone, called the police, and went and embraced the woman. He didn't have to. He could have gone back to church. He could have pretended it was dangerous. He could have walked away. He didn't. Another friend was at their family beach house in Florida. And a workman came to do some work on the house. And she was small talking with him. And he said, how about that election? And she said, yeah, how about it? And he said, yeah, it's time to make the White House white again. She said, that's not funny, I don't appreciate it, and I'm not going to talk with you if you're going to talk like that. Again, she could have ignored the comment. She could have made light of it. She could have joked along to pass. Instead, she stood up to it. These are tiny, tiny little things. But they're things we all encounter. They're ways that we can have the courage to change what we can. They're ways that we can, we can have the risen Christ within us and be the people Christ dreams us to be. It's the wisdom and the courage that we need. It's the faith that Jesus promises. 
At the end of today's gospel, there's an important word. Jesus promises, by your endurance, you will gain your souls. By enduring, that is simply living into and out of our faith, by getting up in the morning, by saying our prayers, uh, by loving those around us as best we can, by going through the ordinary activities of the day with as much faith and trust in Jesus Christ as possible. This is our preparation. This is our practice. This is how we endure anything. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.